It was probably one of the saddest days in my 31 years in the department. It felt like somebody had died in the office, to be honest. It was, it, it, it was, it was awful, like, really awful. So, and, and just the profound sadness was the overriding feeling. And that was Emer Rock, the outgoing Deputy Council General of the Embassy of Ireland, USA. And I'm John Lee. And I'm Martin Nutty. And this is Irish Stew, the podcast for the global Irish nation. This episode of Irish Stew is sponsored by the Irish Heritage Tree Program. Celebrate your Irish roots by planting native trees for family and friends in the beautiful Golden Vale of Ireland. Go to irishheritagetree.com and use the exclusive discount code today. It's irishstew10 for 10% off. That code again is irishstew and the numeral 10. Keep the heritage of Ireland green and growing by going to irishheritagetree.com. Well, welcome to another edition of Irish Stew, conversation for the global Irish nation. And uh, Martin, we've got a good guest today. Yes, I'm delighted. Uh, we have a member of the Irish Diplomatic Corps, uh, Ema Rock. And uh, I understand that you guys have crossed paths, so I'm delighted to make Ema's acquaintance. But fill me in a little bit, John, before we bring her in online. Yeah, Emer's the uh, Deputy Chief of Mission, or also goes by Deputy Ambassador uh, to the U.S. in the in the Embassy in uh, Washington. And I met her on a on a, a Zoom room call. Uh, it was kind of a trade mission uh, that we were both on, and Emer representing the uh, the assists and the the. Uh, interests of the Irish government in fostering Irish businesses coming over here. And I represented, uh, well, I guess I, I knew about this business area and I was brought on to be a panelist. So we got to know each other a bit there. So, Emer, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to, nice to be here and nice to, to, to meet both of you. Uh, still virtually, but uh, almost. We're getting there slowly but surely. There are people I know only virtually, and I forget that we've never actually met. So we'll we'll have to we'll have to remedy this. Uh, Emer, as um, as Martin alluded to, uh, you know the people from the diplomatic corps. Our 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 thing is conversation for the global Irish nation. There, there's nobody more global than folks in the Irish diplomatic corps. Uh, your postings were in Ireland before. Now you're in the uh, now you're in Washington. How does Ireland look from here? You know, when you when you look back to from Washington to Ireland and with some of the some of the political threads going on, we really don't want to get too far into politics. But you are in government. How does Ireland look now that you're over here looking back? Sure. Um, well, I'm just looking at the, the globe behind you um, in your in your Irish stew logo. And, and, you know, on that, it looks very small. But I think from. The reality of it from here is it's it's a lot bigger than it, it is proportionately in, in terms of the rest of the map. I think that's that's one of the things, and particularly at the moment, that's you know even more so um, with the most the most Irish president you know possibly ever, but certainly since JFK. Um, you know, and and, and even before that, uh, you know, Ireland has has you know I hate that horrible cliche of punched above its weight, but it's it's the truth. I mean, I think it is it is somewhere where we have. You know, we have a, a lot of influence because there are a lot of people who care about Ireland, and and you know, I think that goes to our history of emigration over the, you know, over the years and over the centuries, really. I said, and it's 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 given us a very um, 
you know, special place in, in the hearts of Americans here. And it makes our job a lot easier than it could be, actually, to be honest. So it certainly looks bigger than, than it should do, which I think is probably to the envy of all our, our uh, other embassy colleagues. Well, Emer, let's let's find a little bit more about how you get got to where you are today, and uh, we're going to give Martin control of the Wayback Machine and bring you back and to the past, and then back up to the present. Emer, delighted to have you on the show, and um, obviously, we were just having a brief chat before we kind of hit the record button, and you acknowledged being a fellow dub uh, to me. Has that always been the case? Uh, you grew up in Dublin, or What's the backstory? Where'd you come from? Um, I'm, the, I'm the ultimate hybrid, I guess. I'm, I'm a, a dub of parents that came from Clare and Donegal. So I used to always say I could sit comfortably on pretty much any fence. So, uh, yeah, I got, got, you know, lived and bred in, in Dublin. But uh, I suppose my, my heritage and my upbringing was of the country variety. So that's, uh, but yeah, Northsider, good Northsider like yourself. So, so uh, when, uh, when Dublin plays... Claire or Dublin plays uh, Donegal. What colours do you wear in that situation? I'd still be wearing, I'd still be shouting blue, but uh, it, there's always a little catch if Donegal are playing. I'm not sure Claire could ever uh, uh, be in the in the, the football uh, contingent, but certainly um, on a hurling on the hurling basis, Claire would be right up there. But uh, yeah, I'm always I'm always be shouting blue, but uh, a little piece of my heart in, in both of the other two counties. So you're born, bred, and buttered, so to speak, in Dublin. How did you fetch up in the diplomatic corps? Was that part of the master plan? Uh, who put that B in your ear? It, it was so not part of the master plan. It's kind of funny. So I am very much in the department by accident rather than design. I was I was studying uh, for a degree in business um, after I left school, and my dad at some stage put a, a form for the civil service under my nose and said sign that uh, which I did without thinking any more about it but by the time it came around to interviews and things like that I was starting to feel a bit that I wasn't in the right place in terms of college and and did the executive officer exam and uh, and, and got the interviews and was assigned originally to the department of health and I rang up because I was just finishing my first year college exams and I rang up to see if I could defer my entry by a week to do to do my exams and they said actually there's a little bit of a glitch there were two people assigned to that role and you've got to go back into the pot and be reassigned and I ended up in the Department of Foreign Affairs at the tender age of 19 which is a hell of a long time ago so totally by accident. That uh, sounds almost somewhat arbitrary right mm-hmm. um, you know you could have been you know dealing with uh, let's say at, at least from an external point of view a health infrastructure within Ireland that is constantly in the news, a lot of times considered because it has supposedly or may actually have shortcomings, are the more, what I would think is certainly the more glamorous, if you will, Department of Foreign Affairs you get to, you know, get posted overseas, etc. Now, of course, you can disabuse me of that. Maybe a, a career in, under the health portfolio would have proven to be more glam- glamorous, but, you know, uh, gathering up a bowl of virus is probably not high on my priorities, although we did have a guest who kind of had her big journalist breakout uh, doing a piece on Ebola. That was uh, Shauna Kinnear. Anyway. So 19, it's, it's, it's a very early stage to kind of commit to a career. You know, I, I, 
I was clueless at that point. I was probably a bit clueless too then, but it, I was there and uh, I, you know, it, it wasn't glamorous necessarily in the beginning, but it was, it was fun. And there were lots of, lots of things that, uh, that kind of attracted me to it. I, I spent probably my careers in nearly two halves at this stage. So I'd spent the first guts of 20 years between rearing kids and, uh, and, and being at home part-time and working in the kind of corporate services end of the, the department. But I used to moonlight um, in the press office for for big visits, so that was where my my real glamour came from. And I I, I have to say, getting you know getting involved in, in in working on big high level visits was like a drug at that stage. And I just I just it, it was the thing that kept me um, kept me in foreign affairs all the time. I mean, a lot of people who would have been in the the kind of the non diplomatic side of foreign affairs would have felt that their career paths were a little bit. Um, not stunted, that's not the right word, but just that there was, you know, there were less opportunities for, for people who weren't in the diplomatic stream. But I, I was determined to stay and because uh, I couldn't, I couldn't have given up the, those visits. I said they were the, they were the bit that, that I got all the fun from. Well, well, Emer, that's a place where there we we overlap the the press. You know, public relations is my business, and uh, it can be a very interesting uh, path. But ultimately, it's probably not going to be the path that takes you as far as you've gone. You might have gotten into healthcare. You've risen up in the uh, diplomatic corps. I guess cream rises to the top. I'm not going to, I'm not going to expect for you to handle that one. Uh, you know, Martin and I were looking at your background and uh, we, we saw the Irish abroad unit and that seems to fit very well with the kind of discussions we have here in Irish too. What's that? What was that all about? So, yeah, so, so that's, that's what I'm saying by in terms of, of, of two halves. So the first, you know, 20 odd years were, were on the corporate services side. And then I moved to the Irish abroad unit initially to, to help out with the, the first well, not the first, the second Global Irish Economic Forum in 2011. Um, again, you know, having the background in the logistics of big events that, you know, that was probably where my, my forte, rather more on the logistics side rather than on the, the actual media side. But uh, but I, I, I fell in love with, with that side of things, uh, you know, the, dealing with the diaspora all over the world, the whole notion that we were so much bigger than than just the, the confines of our island was was just fascinating and, um, in 2015, um, the, the, the government then announced the first ever minister for the diaspora, Jimmy Deanahan. So at that stage, I was uh, working in the unit and we went from basically being a, a unit of 10 people in the department to a, a junior ministry over. I mean, it wasn't even overnight. It was over a lunch hour. I think I saw it on Twitter or on the news. Um, one lunch hour that we, they'd appointed a minister. And that was that was a game changer for for, for the department and uh, and the unit and, and me in particular because I got to to travel and experience so much when when uh, when Minister Dinahan was appointed so and, and we've we've had a former minister of the diaspora on Kieran Cannon yeah yeah and uh, I think I may even have crossed paths with you actually at that stage John so uh, going way 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 back so um, but but that was that was great and, and Minister Dinahan was. He was a man on a mission. He had he knew that there was an election looming. That the time that in in that job for him was going to be, you know, relatively short. And he had so much he wanted to do. And we, as a small unit, did things that probably shouldn't have been humanly possible in the, in the length of time that was available. But it was it, it was just exhilarating. We 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 just um, 
just did everything you possibly could in terms of starting things with with diaspora. Now, I mean, the Emigrant Support Programme had been there since 2004 and the unit had been there and, the, you know, there'd been a lot of work done up to then, but this gave it a profile that that, that changed it completely. So, Yeah, he, he spoke before the Irish Business Organisation. We had a small gathering of the kind of the board, the executive board. Yeah. So what... Um, triggered this sea change. So 2015, all of a sudden, you know, we have a minister for the diaspora. What was the triggering event? What was, you know, uh, the reason for this jump in profile? Not sure. I mean, I think people realize that, you know, that well, there are two sides to the diaspora engagement. One was the, the bit that we've been doing for, for quite a while through the Emigrant Support Programme, the welfare, the support for the, the, you know, the less well-off, the more vulnerable, the elderly communities that have gone away, you know, gone and overseas years and years ago and, uh, and just trying to keep people connected. Uh, and then there was the other side, which was kind of the Global Economic Forum, where you were bringing the, the more successful people of the diaspora and, and you know, they came together to help the country when it was on its knees in the in the recession, and you know, trying to bring all of that together and realizing both the the benefits um, and the and the responsibilities that the country had to its immigrants and its diaspora, and trying to bring all of that together. And you know, the first diaspora policy was was launched around then as well. So I think there was a, a natural progression um, as we as we developed our thinking about how we should engage with the diaspora, both as a resource and a responsibility and as a, as a point of connection. Maybe in a way we're, you know, the Irish stew here might have been somehow influenced, you know, at that, as that sort of uh, identity, the, you know, the, the awareness emerge, and that's kind of, you know, in a, in a sense, the energy we tapped into, Mark. I think that, that as well, then the, the, the change in the demographics at home in Ireland and how more, more and more people were coming as immigrants into Ireland and how do you keep them connected? How do you keep, so this affinity diaspora and um, kids that were born then in Ireland of, of people who had moved to Ireland. I know there was um, projects of, of, of Polish kids in, in Poland that were born and are Irish passport holders, but are now living back in Poland. And how do you keep those people connected to, to their, their Irish piece of their, of their heritage? So it was, um, you know, there were lots of different strands to it, but it's it's a really, really positive, um, you know, area to work in and, and an area to be part of. And it was something that had a bit of resources behind it, which meant that you could actually do things. And that, you know, I can't remember the full figures for the, the amount that have been, amounts that have been given out in, in grants to date, but they're, um, I mean, it's it's enormous at this stage. So and it's, it is, it's an important way to stay connected with the, with the diaspora. So one of the things that uh, we said originally when we set up the Irish stew, uh, I made a rather violent comment where I kind of said I wanted to shoot the plastic patty in the head. Now, that sounds kind of brutal. Um, but I do, you know, I'm going to venture in the sewer of um, social media. And occasionally I will see people, you know, there's all sorts of varieties of bulletin boards or groups on Facebook and Twitter, etc. Some American will declare that they're Irish. Somebody will co- go back on top and say, you're not Irish at all. You're not really Irish. And there's a certain, certainly if I showed up in Ireland using my lovely American accent, I would probably, you know, in certain quarters might be treated exactly the same way. It's almost slightly hostile. Uh, Ireland's a very welcoming place in my experience. 
But when it comes to issues of Irish identity, I think we're a little conflicted about how exactly to handle people, let's say, that have an Irish with a dash in their Irishness, in other words, an Irish-American or Anglo-Irish or all the different flavors. How best to handle that going forward? I, I, I know what you're saying, but I think in terms of a, an Irish government approach, I think we have a, you know, a very generous interpretation and a very open, welcoming interpretation of, of, what, of what it means to be Irish or to feel Irish. And, you know, I think things like our global Irish Twitter account and that, you know, it's, it's about affinity. It's about a feeling. It's, you know, yes, there are different versions of, of Irish, particularly here in, in America where, you know, you've got a lot of people whose, whose Irishness comes from generations, you know, sometimes four or five, four or five generations back where it's about stories that have been retold through grandparents, great grandparents. And, you know, we have to respect that that's as important and as relevant, um, in terms of their identity as it is to have grown up in, in North Dublin like I did. So, you know, it's, it's about trying to, to get that balance between respecting those traditional Irish American views, say, for example, and then trying to educate people or make people understand what modern Ireland is, which is such a different, more diverse, multicultural, tolerant, open society compared to the, the, the Ireland that their ancestors would have left. And I think our job in the embassy is, is trying to, 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 to manage all of those relationships and to respect all of those relationships and to, to try and bring all of the strands of that uh, together in, so that we're representing everybody that feels Irish and, and wants to be part of this global Irish family because that's ultimately what our constitution is about. It's about that beyond, beyond the, the, the boundary of the island. So. Emer, Emer you're, you're singing our song here on Irish Stew. Uh, mm-hmm. But let's, you're talking about managing relationships. Let's take you to the next phase in your career, which sounds like it got an awful lot more interesting than you had anticipated. 2016 to 2019, Director of British-Irish <laughs> Relations. Did anything happen of significance in that time? <laughs> No, quiet, sleepy hollow, nothing going on, tumbleweed. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, that was that was fun. I, I joined the the British Irish team uh, initially to to in the in the run up to the Brexit referendum, and I was, you know, I thought this was it. We'd have a couple of weeks of, you know, dealing with with the with the referendum, and then things would go back to normal. Yeah, that didn't work. Um, and I think, quite frankly, I've probably been dealing with with Brexit and the fallout ever since. And particularly here in this role, it's 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 nearly as much as part of this role as it as it was at the last. But in terms of the British Irish job, in lots of ways, you know, my role was about maintaining all those relationships and the close affinity that we have with our nearest neighbours, and making sure that we had a relationship at the end of it all. Uh, you know, so all of the good. The good cooperation that went on before and 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 still goes on to be to be fair, um, you know, protecting that, uh, developing that whether it's educational, cultural, people to people links, just just trying to weave as many of those uh, those relationships and build and expand them while while the mood music was changing in terms of uh, what was happening as a result of Brexit and and I think. You know, it, it's 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 been a it's been a tricky time. You know, 
the personal relationships are all are all still there. Yes, the politics is different, but I, I'm I'm fully confident that we'll get back to a point where we're you know where we, we work together uh, in a much more normal way is than, than you know the media the media can be very um can be very hard on this because it doesn't you know because a lot of the noise doesn't allow um doesn't allow things to be to be carry on as normal so you know i, I can't imagine a more complex relationship to ireland than the uk uh Ireland's most important trading partner is the first port of call for the diaspora. And of course, the Northern Ireland question, uh, uh, just, just north of Dublin. Uh, what was it like in the office, in your, in your office the day the vote came down? What, what, what were people oh, saying and doing? It, it wasn't, it wasn't nice. It was probably one of the saddest, it was probably one of the saddest days in my 31 years in the department is that it's, um, you know, I think that was it. It was the feeling. It, it felt like it felt like somebody had died in the office. To be honest, it was it it it, it was it was awful, like really awful. So and and just they say the profound sadness was the was the overriding uh, feeling. And you know, I think for all of us, you know, my brother and his sister in in living near Bristol, my nieces and nephews are there. You know, this is for for Irish people. The UK is as you say next door. It's it's like you know, you go to go to the UK is because you go to Cork from Dublin, you know, so it's, it's, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was, it was awfully sad. So, um, and I think that was the general feeling uh, around the place. Is there heightened concerns uh, for Irish expats now that they, you know, now that England has withdrawn from the European community, um, you know, I, I've read stuff about, let's say British folks that have uh an apartment in Spain or an apartment in Italy now that, that that has presented them with a lot of challenges. But if we switch, you know, switch our hats uh, and look at it from an Irish perspective, for Irish people living in England, I don't think it's really going to upset their bandwagon too much, right? No, I mean, I think the one of the, the, the most important things over the last few years was maintaining the common travel area between Ireland and the UK. So, you know, that has meant that we are treated differently. We have a whole range of, and have been all along, even, even before the referendum, that the common travel allowed certain rights in each other's countries that, that European country, other European countries wouldn't have had. So we've been able to protect and preserve that over the last few years. But that was, you know, that didn't, didn't just happen. There was a lot of effort and time and, and work that went into making sure on both sides, you know, on the UK side as well, to make sure that 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 was protected and that you know, so Irish people, for example, don't have to apply for settled status the way other European countries do, and and various practical things like that. But uh, you know, I, I know it's uh, you know, it's still it's still a, a, an emotional wrench because they're no longer living in the European Union. So for you know, even though Irish passport holders are there, and and and, and we've had a, a surge in the the numbers of people who have applied uh, for for Irish passports over the last few years from from the UK, uh, because as they as they try to protect their status as as members, you know, having the right to travel and and work in in the EU and all the privileges that come with being an EU citizen. So, um, you know, I think that was uh, probably an inevitable. Inevitable consequence. The Irish passport seems to have gotten gotten increasingly attractive for a variety of reasons. Uh, so you know the fact that, you, uh, as I understand it, you need to have one single Irish par, uh, grandparent 
essentially entitles you to an Irish passport, which, if you're American, gives you entree in, into most of Europe, obviously with the exception of England. But then uh, I'm not sure of the niceties with this kind of common policy, whether that governs that. Um, but the interesting thing, I suppose, about Ireland, uh, it's a very, very different place than when I left in 1983. I saw the end of what I call kind of conservative Catholic Ireland. And now the Ireland that I go to visit uh, is now probably one of the most liberal countries in Europe uh, socially. Um, is that a fair description of the place? Yeah. Yeah, I think that is. I mean, I think one of the proudest days in the last few years has been was the day that the the equal marriage referendum passed, and the you know that was the that was the change. Um, that was if you were to find a defining moment that changed Ireland. I think that was it, or that or that recognised the change that was going on in Ireland. I'd say that was it, um, and I think that the way that that happened, and you know. There were numerous things, including people coming home in their numbers to to vote for it. But people who who spoke to their grandparents and and talk, you know, young people who talked to their grandparents and explained why it was important that you know this referendum passed. And so I'd say that was that was the, the change. But I mean, you wouldn't recognise Ireland between now and since 1983. I mean, in terms of even just the demographics, you know, now we have a I think it's about 17% of the population are born outside of Ireland, whereas you know, that's, that was unthinkable in 1983. You know, there was anybody who looked a little bit different would have stood out a lot, whereas now it's a much more multicultural, much more self-assured, much more tolerant, uh, open society, and a much, you know, probably a much nicer place to live in lots of ways. And, you know, I think the Catholic Church probably had... Uh, you know, the various scandals that hit the Catholic Church probably changed people's views. So without getting into too much detail on that, but it's, you know, I think that was probably for a lot of people a change. Yeah, yeah. I, the last time I was in Ireland, uh, I looked across the street in Dublin. There was a Polish, uh, you know, Polish grocery store, all in Polish language. You, you opened up, uh, you know, the, to the topic uh, in a way of diversity. And, uh, Emer, you do not leave a very big social media trail. We had to work hard to get some background material on you, but we did see an article where you spoke about uh, diversity from a variety of angles within the diplomatic corps, painting a, a generally positive picture. Uh, and like most positive pictures, it could get even a little better. Maybe you could just talk to me about, talk to us about, you know, being a woman in the diplomatic corps, what's changed, what's going well, what still needs to be done. Sure. Um, I, I think there is, I think the starting point of that is there's definitely more that needs to be done. And even since that article, I think that you're talking about was published. Um, but there is a, there's definitely a commitment, certainly within our department across the civil service in general in Ireland to, to trying to, to make sure that, that there is greater representation of, of women, particularly at, at senior levels. And I think that's, that's where it is. I mean, it's certainly at intake level and at kind of middle middle management and the next level up, the, there's probably fairly equal numbers. But it's as you get into the, the higher echelons of the, the civil services where there's fewer fewer women represented. And I think, I don't know, there, there we could probably talk for hours on, on the reasons why this is. But it's, you know, it's something that needs to be um, minded and addressed. And I think people, you know, women that do kind of break through some of this and, and do have positions of, of leadership or, or 
are there and they have a responsibility to be a role model to to those coming behind i think it's the tip it's the you know you you can't be it if you can't see it model is 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 the same in in workplaces it is in sports so you know i think uh i think i think was there's you know infinitely more we can do but i i'm glad to see at least it's going in the right direction and that we are for committed. role models you mentioned ann anderson yeah. yeah and martin and i were looking her up uh what a what a career yeah. she, uh, she had so, to i mean when she i mean i've heard her speak several times about this but when she and again she was the, the only woman to ever serve in, as ambassador to to the u.s so she's her her picture is on the embassy wall along with a string of men and i think that tells its story in itself all all great men mind you but uh but it's it's you know remarkable that there was only one woman in that job and uh you know she she had when when she went on her first posting and she had a, a trailing spouse was a trailing husband and and that was even that in terms of how to pay her or how to you know her her everything about her move was new and controversial and all of those things so that it was, you know, the fact that she had to break literally every mold at every stage. Uh, she she just literally blazed a trail through it all. So, but no, no better woman. She great. And she was the uh, also the ambassador to the United Nations, and Ireland has a new role to play at the United Nations. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? And, and another phenomenal woman at the helm there. So Geraldine Byrne-Nason is our ambassador there, and we're. We're nearly six months into our Security Council um, tenure, so we started from January after a very, a very tough, hard-fought campaign to win a seat on the Security Council. Um, so we're just as uh, hoping to to make a difference, and genuinely wanting to to see if our small voice can be amplified and and hold people to account and to say say the things that are difficult and to work for consensus across the, the range of issues that we're responsible for and and to to basically bring bring as much as we possibly can during our two year tenure. So I think it's probably nearly twenty years since we were we were last on the Security Council. Um, but it's a great it's a great opportunity. Very proud of the team that got us there uh, and I'm very proud of the team that are there and, and working uh, I think pretty, it's safe to say pretty much day and night to uh, to make sure that that we we play our part and that we you know I think you know a lot of people think of Ireland as a kind of an honest broker and you know we don't have the same kind of skin in the game as maybe some of the bigger players but it allows us then to be to be focused and agile and and try and do the right thing and I think that's you know, it sounds a bit sounds a bit altruistic but it, it is I and mean, that's the, that's the role that we hope to play there so and are playing there. Yeah, in chatting with um, various people in the Department of Foreign Affairs, uh, it's certainly been impressed on me the pride, uh, and I think justifiable pride, that the diplomatic corps takes in their use of soft power. Um, we had uh, Ted Smith, who was a former uh, DFA uh, member um, on the podcast at an earlier point, and we kind of discussed how minuscule Ireland essentially encouraged some of the most powerful men in America to bring Margaret Thatcher to the table to discuss what became the Anglo-Irish Treaty. So obviously you are now sitting in one of those seats in in, in the most powerful country in the world. So uh, I would assume that's considered to be, you know, 
a plum posting, if you will, within DFA. Um, so tell me about how that came about and how you're enjoying the experience or not enjoying it. It's a possibility <laughs> too, right? Definitely enjoying it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel absolutely and utterly privileged to be where I am right now. It's, uh, it's, it's you know, again, more cliches, but it, it, it really is an honour and, and, and it is as a result of the, you know, that soft power that you talk about and that influence going back to the Irish-American influence. And you know, 40 years ago this year, the Friends of Ireland Caucus was was formed on, on Capitol Hill. And that that caucus is as active today as it ever could have been in terms of uh, Brexit and, and making sure that uh, that Ireland is has has America on one shoulder with the EU on one shoulder and America on the other. And it, it gives us, you know, it's, it's a very reassuring um, support network to have when you're, when you're in, 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 uh, in tricky spots. So it's, uh, you know, it's been, it's, it's a huge privilege and I, you know, kind of pinch yourself sometimes when you, you go downtown and you, all of a sudden you look up and there's the, there's Capitol Hill and it's, you know, it's the thing of half, half the movies I've ever watched and, you know, that you go in and you're doing, taking groups on a tour of the White House and you know, just trying to explain to them, oh, this is such and such a room. You know, I, I never thought that this is where I'd end up, but it's, uh, it's, it's an absolute honour to do it. And, you know, we're very blessed with the access that we have on the Hill and with um, the people that care about Ireland. And I think this goes back to the initial point is, you know, how big, how big does Ireland look? And, you know, when you're, when you're t- talking to people, who are in the height of power here in the US, you know, the people like Chairman the Ways and Means Committee, Richie Neal, like one of the most powerful men in the whole country or in the whole world. And he cares as much about Ireland as as any of us could. He's uh, and, and and many more like him. And I think that's that's, you know, hugely reassuring, hugely important, but it's a huge responsibility to make sure that we protect what they love as much as we love. So so the question I think I raised with Ted when we had him on about the challenges um, of maintaining this kind of close relationship with Irish Americans. Traditionally, Irish Americans were in the Democratic Party. Now they're in both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. But even more significant, I would say, is to some degree the removal from Ireland is getting, you know, with each passing generation. There's not a whole lot of new Irish people moving into the country anymore. Certainly nothing like the hundreds of thousands that were coming, you know, in the 1840s and, you know, tens of thousands that were coming in the 1950s. Now we're, what, a few thousand a year maybe uh, moving into America, you know, some people on temporary visas, etc. So if if that's going to continue to be the way forward, where there is limited Irish immigration to America, how do we continue to maintain the strength of that relationship as the ties, let's say, fade with each passing generation? Yeah, I mean, that's that's obviously a concern and the fact that there aren't pathways now and that's something that we work hard trying to, to change in, in America, you know, lobbying on the hill and things like that. That's, that's definitely very much part of, Part of our role, but I mean, as you know, immigration reform here is is a is a subject that lots of people have lots of opinions on, and that it's a it's a difficult area to to make progress on. But it doesn't doesn't prevent us from doing it. We will continue to 
to to be active in that. But in terms of how do you maintain, um, you know, I've I've been very surprised since I got here about how strong those relationships are and how long how strong those ties are, despite the fact that many of them go back several generations. I think the things that you're doing here, this you know, this this very podcast is is again a prime example of of connecting people and and keeping people attached and keeping those ties strong. All of the stuff that we do in the cultural sphere or that we support, I, I can't say we do, we do, we support it, but the people that get out and and do those things, whether it's getting up and, and putting up GAA nets on a Sunday morning for kids playing or whether it's the things like the massive project in the Irish Art Centre in New York or, or theatre groups all over the country. Um, I think one of the things that struck me when I worked in the Irish Abroad Unit was was just the level and the depth and the extent of the Irish community in the US and in particular. It was just astonishing. It's the same same in lots of countries, but in the US in particular, it is just it's it's people people feel their Irishness um as much as if they were had grown up there. It's you know the people People identify the fact that people identify and tick a box on the census form to say that they feel Irish ethnicity is is of it, it amazed me in the beginning and it continues to amaze me and as I witness it and I see what that means to people in practice and how committed they are to things like Irish dancing, Irish uh, singing, GAA, um, all sorts of cultural uh, movements, and then you see a whole new generation now watching Derry Girls and things like that, and that that then is. It's very comforting to know that there, there are, it's still possible to connect with people despite the fact that they, they may be a couple of generations removed and that they're, they're, that, that appetite for, for wanting to be part of it. You see it in the embassy. You, know, you, you send out a, an invitation with the harp on it and, and people just respond to that so well and that that convening power that the embassy or the consulates around the country, and we've all over the, the 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 country at this stage um not you know obviously we'd love to have a few more but uh, there, there are several of them that are have that same convening power to bring people together and as long as people want to come together we'll continue to to do that so uh, I love that expression convening power I got to think about that one I had not heard that before that's uh that, that I think that could be a theme here uh Emer, uh, I lived in Washington, D.C. for four years. And at that point in my life, my Irish expression was mostly regular trips to the Dubliner. Uh, but, uh, you know, since then, I've, I've, I've opened up. But uh, let me ask you a little bit about uh, Washington, D.C. And, uh, in, in, you know, as that outpost of America, um, you know, to what extent have you gone native here in the U.S.? Uh, have you picked up, uh, you know, do you go to... Uh, uh, Nationals baseball games. You go out to the Eastern Shore for boiled crabs. Uh, any any of the parts of uh, DC and America that really, uh, really you really enjoyed? Well, I suppose I've been here since September 2019, so not terribly long. Most of which we've been kind of locked uh, up. True. So, uh, <laughs> I confess, I have a I have a bucket list that's quite long, and that includes things like games and uh, baseball games and the Eastern Shore. Uh, I've done snippets of them, but not as much as I'd like to. In fact, even even the simple things that you would expect in Washington, which is the the, the plethora of of museums and, and wonderful places to visit, I thought the, when I arrived here, the first six months I was here were insanity. It was morning, noon, and night, just 
just on the go. And I thought, well, sure, I'll have loads of visitors. I'll be out at the weekends. Every weekend I'll be in a museum and I'll be so sick of them that uh, I'll, I'll, I'll save it for the visitors. And then March 2020 hit. And yeah. so we went from, we went from uh, the Ireland Fund's St. Patrick's Day Gala Ball in full black tie regalia to uh, the Taoiseach announcing on the steps of Blair House here in, in Washington that uh, the schools and the rest of Ireland was shutting down on the 12th yep. of March 2020 and, and pretty much everywhere <laughs> followed suit. So, uh, so yeah, it's been a strange time. There's, yeah. there's loads of things that I've, I've, I've yet to do. Um, I'm working my way through, through the list pretty rapidly. Um, uh, and it's great now that things have opened up so much here. I think, uh, I think from, from Friday, the, the restrictions on numbers are all lifted and, and pretty much, um, people can, you know, business as usual from, from this weekend, I think. So it, it's great to be here, um, now to, to experience and to enjoy what Washington has to offer. It has, it has so much. I did get to see the, the new baby panda in the zoo. So <laughs> That was, that was on my list. So that one is, I'm very happy to have checked that one. You're leading into just one quick question I wanted to ask about experiencing Washington, D.C. How does somebody from Ireland handle a Washington, D.C. summer? Yeah, um, I don't mind it so much. I like the heat. Uh, my daughter is here with me and she can't stand the heat. And I'm not sure how much longer she's going to last. Uh, she's... Uh, yeah, she, she, we put it this way. We, we went on a 20, what should have been a 25 minute walk the other day, got about 15 minutes in it and had to call an Uber. So I think we've fully gone native in, in terms of, uh, the, the DC heat. It's, it's pretty intense. And, uh, I, I think it's, I don't say it's built on a swamp. So I think the, the humidity levels are the real issue. But if you've spent four years here, you know all about that. <laughs> How has life in swampland changed now with the, as you alluded to up at the very start of the podcast, uh, a president that is probably the most Irish president since JFK. What changes does that cause within the embassy, within your activities in the embassy? Probably not as much as you might think. Um, you know, I, I, you know, despite what you know, people might have thought we had very good relationships. Uh, you know, in the previous administration, and I'm work well with with both Democrats and Republicans, and uh, you know, our job is the same regardless of of who's in the White House. I think what changes is is maybe the tone or the the atmosphere around it. May, maybe changes a bit, but we've you know we've been very fortunate, and and you know, I suppose the harder we work, the more fortunate we get uh, in in terms of the, the the relationships we've had and and the and the people. That, that we've had to connect, we've been able to connect with, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head the other day when you mentioned or earlier on when you said that uh, that that there are Irish Americans in both the Democratic and the Republican Party, and and you know they're equally passionate about Ireland, and that's the one issue where there's real bipartisanship is around Ireland and around Northern Ireland and around Brexit, and so you know the the work that we do doesn't hasn't really changed as a result of that yes that things uh, around town have changed a bit but you know our our job is is to make sure that we have good contacts and good connections with whoever's in power and and, and we're representing ireland regardless so you know it's 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 you know it doesn't matter so much um of course it's nice to have a a president that is is passionately uh, involved and concerned and has an interest in Ireland and uh, you know hopefully we'll 
we'll have a visit where we can, you know, the whole of Ireland can can show just how how much we appreciate having somebody like Joe Biden in the White House. So, you know, I think I don't know if that answers the question or. Yeah, I think so, because, you know, here's the thing. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Ireland is probably one of the most liberal countries in Europe right now. And that generally speaking, the politics of Ireland would be much less conservative, not conservative at all, when compared to the Republican Party. So I was curious about, you know, how you straddle that challenge. Uh, obviously, as you said, your job is, is to maintain relationships and try and move the ball forward for Ireland. So I was kind of wondering, do you switch emphasis a little bit? Because now we're dealing with a political party whose philosophy is this, whereas, you know, another party might be, you know, philosophy will be that. Uh, is, is that how it works when the administration changes? Because it's kind of like moving time, right? Anytime this, the big election rolls around every four years, you know, it can be a real sea change in how business is done. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the things that are important to us don't change regardless of whether it's representing, you know, business interests, uh, you know, Irish business interests, whether it's, you know, trying to, to find legal pathways for, for more Irish people, um, developing cultural links and people to people links. Some of those things, I, it doesn't change just because the administration changes. Maybe perhaps a little bit the way we, the way we do things. But again, it goes back to the, the convening power of the, of the embassy. That, that's how we do it. I mean, our, our job is about bringing people together. And, and, then, and then at the end, people are just people. Like, and, you know, you'll, you'll find connections with people. Maybe they're different connections this time around than they were a year ago. But, you know, there's still ways of connecting with people. And, and, and there's always enough common ground, uh, particularly when you're dealing with people who, who understand Ireland or have that that uh, relationship with Ireland because it's part of their heritage. So it's, yeah, maybe maybe the some of the topics that you discuss, you maybe you don't talk about the same things exactly in terms of those connecting points, but the, the messages that we're giving don't change because the American um, leadership has changed. It's, you know, our, our, our job is about representing Ireland here, so not the other way around. So I don't know if that's... Sounds like a fudge, but it's, uh, you know... I Not think a fudge at all. It, it makes perfect sense. So you, you've obviously come to America under unusual circumstances. And from what I understand, there, there, you have a big upcoming change career-wise. So can you fill us in on that a little bit? Yeah, I don't know how big, I, I don't know how big a change it is or how much of a change... Um, so I came here. Global pandemic was not part of my plan when I came here. So I, I left my I left my family in Ireland, um, and my daughter hasn't been well, so she had some mental health challenges. So I made the decision to go home, um, but I'm going home to be director for uh, US and Canada. So it's a nice progression for me. It's a nice. Um, it just means that this job basically will feed straight into the the new job, which is which is always nice. Which which to be honest, since 2011, that's kind of I, I don't know whether it's luck or, or what, but I've gone from you know the whole world diaspora, UK diaspora, US diaspora, and now I go back to US and Canada. So uh, among among the other issues, not just the diaspora, obviously there's a whole range of of, of issues, but it's it's for me that 
that I'm delighted that that's where I'm going back to. I'm delighted that I get to use what I've learned here, all the things that I've experienced here seem to, you know, even though it's been a short, a short enough posting, it's, it's been two different administrations. I've seen an election, I've gone through a global pandemic in the US. Um, you know, there's been a lot of things that have happened in that particular block of two years that I think give me a, a really good understanding and insight as to how, how, uh, some things in this country work and that can really inform the policy making at the at the other end in, in Dublin, which is where I'll, I'll be now. Obviously the Canada piece and be picking it up from from my Irish abroad days with my only experience of Canada. So that's a that's a big learning curve which uh, which is always good to to challenge. Have new challenges uh, uh, every few years. So yeah, no really excited about going back to that. And it's gone back to the same division in the department that I I, uh, I worked in on the British side. So um, come back to my old boss, uh, Fergal, and, uh, and, and, you know, knowing the setup there will, will definitely help me just settle back uh, pretty quickly. So I hope. So after a, a couple of years in the States, and now you're going back to Ireland and you're going to basically leverage a lot of what you've learned in the interim, what are the big takeaways you have coming back, the stuff that you realized after living here for a couple of years that you didn't know or, you know, maybe didn't emphasize the same way uh, as an Irish person looking into America, now you're an Irish person looking out of America, right? Or maybe, uh, maybe I need to do a bit more of the stepping away to, to think that one through fully. But, uh, but I suppose things like how Congress works and understanding the differences. I mean, I suppose probably when I came out here, you know, you have a, a sort of a sense of it, uh, but it doesn't. It, it it's it's different when you're when you see it up close and and how different things, how different bills work, how they get passed, how they don't get passed, why they don't get passed. So that side of things is very useful. And um, the whole lobbying uh, environment here is is fascinating, and and just understanding that the significance of that, the importance of that. Um, what other Speaking as an American citizen, I'm fascinating is probably not the word I would attach to the lobbying process. <laughs> you know, uh, and I won't ask you to comment on that. Okay. No, I'll, I'll comment on it though, Martin, because I, I realize that you know lobbying cuts both ways. Because there are people lobbying for what I want. You know, there there may, there may be better finance people lobbying for things I don't care about or I may be against. But also, there are lobbyists out there for the Irish the Irish lobby. You know, there are people who are putting it before the key staff members, you know, and they're the people who are helping write the laws. Uh, it's not all good, but it, it is both sides have them. And, you know, one side might be better financed or, or the many sides have them. So anyway, um, one thing I don't like about the Irish diplomatic corps is Ooh. you get to know these great folks and then they move, move away they go off to the other side of the world so no i i understand it's it must be kind of a i mean it, it's probably what drives some people out of the diplomatic corps it's probably what keeps some people going in the diplomatic corps but uh, and you haven't done that much shifting around but but uh it, it is a it's a tough aspect of it yeah, I suppose I've probably seen it from mostly uh, as a, this is my first posting. So, you know, unusually at this stage in my life, but, uh, I've, I've always been the static one in Dublin and mm. watched, 
I suppose watch my friends come and go kind of August. I used to, yeah, I used to hate that in August uh, every year where you'd have to say goodbye to, to a whole ton of people that are going off on, on postings. And then, and then you come in in September and, and after the kind of, you know, back to school season, then you come back in and there's all these people that you had said goodbye to four years ago and they're all back and it's, and you say, oh, okay, it's not so bad after all. So it does, it does mean that time takes on kind of strange, a strange kind of cycle. Um, it's very much around the, the, you know, for me, New Year's is September. It's, mm-hmm. it's always, it's always September. Um, and that, that's kind of the time when things get refreshed and, and changed and, and there's there's a new energy and momentum and hopefully this year will be even better given that people have gone through so much over the last over the last uh, 18 months or so now um but yeah it's 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 difficult and it's difficult for for people and and certainly you know people people sign up to be part of the department but their families don't and their spouses don't and and things like that so it's you know, it's difficult, um, but it's a privilege. And I think, you know, I, I wouldn't like anybody to think that I was in any way complaining about, uh, about the job we do. It, it's, a, it is, it's, it's very much the, I suppose patriotism sounds very uh, highfalutin, but I mean, it's, it's very much about putting on the green jersey and, and just being there, having the, the privilege to do that on behalf of your country. It's, it was the only thing that's equivalent is like playing for Ireland for, you know, <laughs> in, in some sort of sport. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a it's a it's a great job. I can't uh, I can't um, and you know and, and the fact that it's it's so much fun and so rewarding means it doesn't always feel like work. Sometimes it does, but most of the time it really doesn't. So, Eber, I, I mentioned like Martin usually likes to play two degrees of separation. I'm surprised he hasn't <laughs> figured out that you're cousins yet. But I'll mention a few of the uh, diplomatic corps uh, that I've I've met uh, because they really opened a lot of doors for me. I think the first uh, council general in New York I met was Niall Burgess. And then uh, was uh, Noel Kilkenny and Peter Ryan. Peter Ryan, I became, he was a very influential guy uh, in me sort of traveling down the Irish path. And uh, we had him as a virtual speaker at the Irish Business Organization all the way from New Zealand, where he's now the ambassador. Anna McGillicuddy was, was a, was a lo- wonderful presence. me as director for British-Irish relations. Oh, okay. I, that did sound familiar. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, oh gosh, uh, uh, Kieran Madden right now, and then Emer Friel, who's going to become the ambassador to Latvia, I believe. Riga, yeah, she's got to Riga. Yeah. So anyway, those, all, a lot, and I know I've left out a few people, but uh, really, really great folks and very, very influential. And oh, Barbara Jones, Barbara Jones would have been another important uh, uh, figure. Now she's the ambassador to We're Mexico. We're playing a dangerous game now, you see. Yeah. <laughs> but, but really great folks. So be diplomatic here, John. Okay, don't don't leave out a name. Okay, <laughs> it's not a competition. <laughs> all good. <laughs> Well, there's, there's some good people, and the, and the good thing about our system probably is that because it's small, you know, we 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 recycle people pretty quickly. So it's um, you know it's it's it, it, it's people know each other. You know, maybe not as much as we used to in the past, but certainly it's still relatively small as a as a, a diplomatic service. Um, and, uh, you know, unlike some of the, the bigger countries where we, you know, people just wouldn't know each other, so. We're, we're we're lucky from from that perspective. So, and, and all the people that you've mentioned are, are are good people, and I've worked with many of them, and I'm sure we'll work with some of them again in the, in the future. So, of course, Niles are uh, Niles our secretary general, if you know. 
Emer, you've been great to uh, spend this time with us. I know there are busy days. There are always busy days, but uh, we we appreciate you spending the time with us. We have moved on to the portion of the program we call the Seamus Plug, where we give our guests a chance to underscore, promote, highlight something of importance to that. And what what would be your Seamus Plug? Um, I think anything to do with mental health services. I mentioned that my daughter was uh, had problems with mental health over the years. Um, so places like Pieta House and I think Solace House, which I think I was in the in the Irish Abroad Unit when that was established first and was involved in getting getting Pieta House to to New York, um, which is now of course Solace House. So anything anything with mental health services are are things that I'm passionate about and, and interested in and, and always think. You know, the, the stigma around mental health uh, is something that we all need to, to work hard to, to get rid of and to normalize conversation around mental health issues and recognize that, you know, this is not, it's, it's not a weakness, it's, a, it's an illness and that people have, um, you know, any more than any other illnesses that people deserve the, the respect. And I think now that as we come out of this awful pandemic, I think, uh, you know, people people need to be kinder. You know, as I say, if you can be anything in the world, be kind. So. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you highlighted that, Emer. Um, it's just another example for me as to how different Ireland has become and Irish people have become. Certainly, back in the 1980s, any mention of any kind of mental illness at all would be whispered at and quickly swept under the rug. I think being front-footed and treating treating these conditions like any other illness is so incredibly important. And it kind of gives people the confidence simply to be able to reach out and ask for help, which is, you know, part of the way forward. Um, so I do hope, you know, that your daughter is, is making a good recovery. And we certainly wish you and your daughter and the rest of the, you know, Department of Foreign Affairs community well as they come to the big shuffle again. Um, but we really enjoyed having you on here and um, look forward to hopefully having more conversations. And uh, if there are any colleagues you want to steer towards us and tell them that we're a worthwhile stopping point to have a chat about things diaspora, things global Irish uh, community, uh, it's certainly something that we'll be delighted to entertain. Sure, great. Thanks, and yes, thanks for that about Tara. She's she's here with me. Uh, she's here with me in in DC and and doing really well and enjoying enjoying the the last few months here. So uh, thanks again, and thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. I can't believe it. Time flew very, very quickly. So uh, uh, really really pleased to be on, and I will. I'll, I'll send I'll send some colleagues your direction. So. And Martin, I, I found out today we have convening power. We attracted yeah. Amy Rock to the show. Amy, thanks so much. Uh, we'll meet. We'll meet in person sometime. I hope, and uh, I, I'm sure our our connections and our paths will intersect. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Thanks again. So, John, one of the most interesting parts of that conversation was when we were talking to Emer about her time as director of British Irish relations. Specifically, she happened to have the misfortune. I think, of arriving in that particular department right when Brexit took place in June of 2016, five years ago now. And she just very poignantly said, 
it felt like somebody had died because everything got upended. Ireland's major neighbor next door to them, their major trading partner, was now deciding to withdraw from Europe. And Europe is something Ireland has been heavily committed to. And so I can envisage the look of shock on people's faces once they realized what had happened and how much work laid ahead to try and cobble that relationship back together. Very, very, very serious work. Britain made the move, but Ireland had to pick up a lot of the pieces, and there was Emer in, in the middle of it all. And then she comes to Washington, D.C., and that's a city I lived in for four years, so I thought we were going to talk about some of the sights and sounds of Washington, D.C., until she reminded me that a lot of her time in D.C. has been spent in lockdown, like the rest of us, working out of her kitchen on, on Zoom calls, uh, like everybody else, her time here severely compromised from COVID. And just to mention, I did meet her on Zoom in a kind of trade mission that I was involved with. And I, I know she's done a lot of work in, in the trade space. And you know, Martin, I like to come up with one word that sticks with me, and it's definitely was conveners or convening, that idea of that's really the power. There's no nukes in Ireland, but they do have this uh, convening power, bringing people together uh, around some common causes or, or creating some shared interests. And, you know, I like to think that might be what we're doing here on Irish Stew as well, the uh, convening power. Yeah. And if you're speaking about one word, the word that comes to mind in my case is adaptation, because People in the Department of Foreign Affairs are constantly having to adapt. In other words, they get to serve a tour of duty. One year it might be Portugal. Next year it might be the United States. And that was the case, if you remember, with Ted Smith. And so having that degree of adaptive flexibility is really what that department is characterized. And they are the folks that kind of smooth the way and open the doors and facilitate that Irish soft power that has been exercised so successfully over the past few decades. I've met a lot of great people in the diplomatic corps and they tend to move every four years. The, the plus side is that you keep meeting some great people in the diplomatic corps. The downside is you make some friends and find out they now are stationed in New Zealand or Estonia, but maybe they come back to us as well. And, uh, you know, you're kind of talking about the flexibility, the adaptability. Life goes on, too. Just because you're a diplomat, all life does not turn out to be perfect. And Emer was very open and in discussing mental health issues uh, that she's uh, been dealing with in her family. And it was good to give her a chance to talk about that. And I think, you know, that was her shameless plug. And I think the core idea in her shameless plug was people need to be kind. And on that note, we're going to wrap up this season, Martin. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, a lot of great guests. And we're going to take a hiatus, a fancy word, which is nothing more than a break. We will be returning to drop another episode on September 12th. And so we look forward to continuing to have the conversation with fascinating Irish folks who will tell us why they do what they do and how their Irish edge impacts their overall success. And Martin, we're not just dropping another episode, we're dropping another season. You're absolutely right. Well, Martin, a lot of our listeners ask uh, how they can help 
spread the global Irish conversation. What do you think? Best thing people can do to help out the podcast is to simply share the episode. If you like what you've heard so far in this episode or other episodes, share it on social media, whether that's Facebook or whether that's Twitter or whether that's Instagram or share it via email or word of mouth. All of those things are going to help us out. And don't be shy about dropping us a note. Uh, you can do so on our website. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty, with Donald Bowens on drums, Cahill Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com. <laughs>